0: You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast for June 27, 2019. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I am Brent Bergherm, the host for this episode, and here with me are two fine people, Jenna Martin and Levi Sim. Jenna, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: Yeah. And Levi, you as well. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I'd like to start off each episode with just a little bit of sort of catching up with what we've been working on. And Jenna, actually, this is the first time you and I have uh, met, you know, we, we have yet to even meet in person, but really just looking at what we've been working on. So just catch us up on what you've been working on photographically, just a little tidbit of something that you've been working on recently.
1: Um, you know, I uh, lately I I specialize in underwater portraits, which is a weird thing to specialize in Montana, but <laughs> yeah, it would be. That's a uh, that's kind of my field, and so lately I've been, I I've been focusing a lot more on writing, and so I've been putting together some kind of a kind of taking all the underwater stuff that I've done over the years and putting together some kind of a photo book. So that's been that's been a bit of an adventure right there in itself.
0: Awesome. Uh, that, that's cool. I've, uh, I've got my first outline, uh, going on a book that I'm wanting to do as well. So, uh, yeah. that's, that's awesome that you're, you two are working on one for underwater portraits. Yeah, that's definitely a niche thing. And how do you do that yeah. in Montana? <laughs> I, mean, well, there's, and there's, there's, there's,
2: I mean, your, your underwater portraits are really next level. I mean, they're, they're, not, oh, thank you. they're not typical. So
1: yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing to be in Montana and, and do that for a living. <laughs>
0: so are you using swing pools and the like or?
1: Um, sometimes, but for the most part, no, it's out in the lakes, which oh. is great. It's glacier water, so it's nice. super clear. But yeah, it's <laughs> And it's also like
2: 37 degrees.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's full on freezing, and I have a rule: I don't wear a wetsuit or anything because the models don't. So, yeah. all right, I have to be in the same conditions. So, yeah, we're it's just cold. <laughs> oh, that
0: that would be so fun. I'm not a portrait shooter myself, but something like that, I just know I would have a blast doing that. I uh, that would be it's, fun to do. It's a do. bit
1: addicting. It's a bit hey, addicting. Quick, quick question, Jenna: What
0: what kind of a uh, housing do you use?
1: I use icelite. Do you? Yeah, I love them. I've used quite a few over the years, but Icolite is kind of hands down my favorite. And now I'm actually an ambassador for them. So right. it might sound like I'm getting paid to say that, but I'm not. I just genuinely, no, no. Yeah. I bothered them until they finally just let me be an ambassador. That's works for me.
2: So I love that. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Levi, how about yourself? What have you been up to recently?
2: Oh, it's kind of all over the board. Yesterday I was photographing signs for a client and uh, this afternoon I'm making some videos for another client outdoors. And at the end of the week, I am taking a backpacking trip and photographing landscapes and environmental portraits and hopefully some wildlife, so.
0: All right. It's, so photographing signs, you mean literally like a stop sign and road signage or what are we talking about there?
2: It's not even that interesting. It's <laughs> it's, it's like the sign that is right next to your office at the university that says room 194, Mr. Bergherm. <laughs> All right.
0: It's two oh six by the yeah, way, but yeah.
2: And they're not even on the wall. So <laughs> just just product photography for a client. And right. they make that kind of sign. Lots of bathroom signs.
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. All right.
1: That's actually kind of fascinating. <laughs> it's it's
2: uh it you know it stretches it stretches you to photograph something really mundane and try to find interesting things about it and so yeah like they're they're all made of acrylic so i ended up stacking up a whole bunch of, of the raw materials and just shining some shining my flash through it and i don't know it, it's it's like a uh it's kind of a fiber optic effect yeah where the light coming through the sides doesn't radiate out the top and so it continues shining out the end and and it's very segment anyway it was kind of fun to to find something that's, so, that's really cool to do.
0: <laughs> nice. Very cool. Well, I this starting next week, I'll be actually recording my print lab videos. I have the master photo printing course online on my website. And I've been talking about for months now how I'm gonna add this bonus section to it where it's not yeah. just working with your own printer. But I'm going to look at at least six different online print labs. And so I'm going to start doing that next week. And then that'll turn into some podcast episodes as well. And then I'm also planning a month-long road trip, which is going to end up, well, not end up, but I'll go through Denver and there'll be a meetup. So if there's any listeners out there that are going to be in the Denver area, I'll be doing a printing workshop with the... A lone tree photo club on July twenty eighth, And so that evening we'll go out and shoot, uh, but that's the, the shoot is going to be open to anybody and won't cost a thing. It's just a nice casual meetup to get out there and shoot some pictures with some friends of the show.
1: Oh, that'll be fun.
0: Yeah. Looking forward to that for sure. But we'll end up on our road trip. We'll end up in the Chicago area and that's where I grew up. So it'll be kind of neat to spend a few days. It's been years since I've been out there and uh-huh. it's always nice to visit where you've, you know, where you had a couple of roots before and, then we'll fire on back before it gets too late in in August for uh, school starting uh, as we get back into town. So it'll be good. Oh, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention my shoot, process, print Oregon Coast workshop. We're going to head on down to the beautiful and dramatic Oregon Coast, headquartering ourselves in the area of Bandon. It's a nice place where you can get a little bit north, a little bit south really easily. There's just tons of great stuff to shoot. And what we're looking to do here is just experience everything from photographing, setting up the shot, talking over our compositions, and getting it all worked out as best as we can out there in the field. And then we look at some post-processing and, of course, making some awesome gallery quality prints. You know, Christmas is coming up and maybe it'll make a good gift for somebody. Uh, Or you can just turn your living room your garage, your bedroom, whatever, into a gallery of your own prints. So it's an awesome opportunity to come and just learn so much about all these different aspects of photography. So really looking forward to doing that. That'll happen the last week in August. So I'll get home from my road trip. I'll spend about a week at home recuperating from that. And then we're heading on out to the coast and all the info and you can sign up and everything like that. It's all there on my website. So head on over to my website, brentbergherm.com and you'll be able to find out more And of course, you can reach out if you happen to have any further questions. Nice. All right. So let's take a look at our topic today. Today's topic is talking about or defining photography jargon. And I've written down some items in the show notes that we can follow along with as we discuss. But I really just, you know, as we define some of these items, I just really want to say, let's just talk about them. You know, uh, if you have ideas for how to better explain it, I think that's wonderful that we have three of us here to hopefully unpack these terms. And this is definitely geared more towards the beginner uh, photographer, where if you have been shooting for 10, 20 years or what have you, you know this will probably be review for you for sure. But if you've only been shooting for a couple of years, I'm pretty sure there's gonna be something that you're gonna learn here. And hopefully everyone can appreciate that. So Excellent. yeah, I, this will be a fun. One. Yeah, so the first one on the and I should say too, um, this comes almost directly from. I added a few items, but this comes from some listener suggestions. So I went to the Facebook group and about six weeks or so ago, I just kind of put it under the guise of quote doing research," and I put the question out there saying, you know, when it comes to photography terms or the language of photography or something like that. What do you guys wish you had known about, or you know, what what do you think about? And so these, a bunch of these, were just recommended from the listeners, uh, and then I added a few more as well. So let's get started. And the the first item okay. is the the term of a stop. We might also say stops or f stops. So quite literally, that comes from the idea of an aperture ring, or maybe even your your shutter ring on older cameras when you know when it clicks into place, and that's where it stops that's where the setting stops and that's where um what we're dealing with with light whether it's allowing in more light or allowing in less light so levi take it from there
2: yeah um well let's let's do i'll I'll, I'll talk about shutter speed then and um fortunately as you're working with your camera if you tick the shutter speed one tick that's that's an equal amount of light change as ticking uh, turning the wheel for the aperture one tick, or turning the ISO one tick. So your your camera's got you balanced out really nicely. Yeah. Uh, and and usually right now most of us talk about thirds of a stop because for every three ticks of your wheel, it's going to change your uh, exposure one full stop, which is which is a having or a doubling of the amount of light. So going from Uh, one one hundredth of a second to one two two hundredth of a second is half as much light because you're letting light in for half as much time or going to one fiftieth of a second is twice as much light so that's a that's a full stop change but in between there we can go to you know there's there's one two fiftieth one uh three twentieth and then four hundred and so each of those little ticks is set to a third now on some cameras your default setting is actually at half stops. And I would recommend going in and changing that to third stops. Half stops is, is kind of a, I'd say like a 1992 method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think modern life, everybody's using thirds of a stop. Yeah. And, and and some commercial photographers, when they're working with, with strobe lights and things, they, they really prefer to adjust those in tenths of a stop. Now right. they only adjust their, their lights in tenths of a stop but the camera's all all tick along at, at a third of a stop. So so yeah, going from 1/200th of a second to 1/400th of a second is half as much light coming in the camera. And um and that's a that's a full stop change. Yeah, and I
0: think that idea of of you know emphasizing you're either doubling or having the amount of light that's something that in one sense I think is fairly common when you're only dealing with one stop but then you go two three Mm -hmm. four stops you're Mm -hmm. doubling it every single time and that puts you on this more logarithmic scale of representation of it because when you change three stops you're actually putting in eight times the amount of light
1: Exactly. and so we we can
0: think linearly when we're doing our stops but it's not linear it's actually logarithmic in its uh in how much light it has a quantity of light, but thankfully, like you mentioned, you know, you, you the the ticks are equal. So if you yeah. do one tick on the shutter, you do one tick on the ISO, or what have you, then they just balance each other out. And that's that's wonderful, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, and it's it's easy to picture that with the shutter speed because when you go from one one hundredth of a second to one two hundredth of a second, that's a change of, of one hundredth of a second, right? Of one, yeah, of one hundredth. It, of a second
0: yeah it's basically but simple it's basically math 400,
2: then it's two hundredths of right. a second and then when you go to 800 it's four hundred so that's that's where that logarithmic change yep. comes in it's, it's climbing up
0: there you bet now jenna uh unpack this idea of the aperture and how it works and and relates to this uh the stops idea
1: i know when i was first starting out i was i was having a hard time with aperture because you know an aperture we tend to think of you know, the you'll hear people say a small aperture, and right. that actually means a higher f-stop. And what they mean by that is because your aperture is essentially how wide your lens opens up. And the wider the lens opens up, the more light it's letting in. And the narrower the lens closes down, the less light it's narrowing in. So I tend to think of it as a funnel. So yes. the very top of the funnel is like a low aperture, and that would be considered your f2.8 or something like that. And then the very tip of that funnel, where just a barely a little bit of stuff gets through, that's where that tiny bit of light gets through. That's more like an F-22. So even though it's considered a wide aperture, that would be your smaller (laughs) F-stop. So I I think sometimes that kind of gets a little confusing between when someone says, oh, you want to shoot at a high F-stop. It's a low, like it's a small aperture, but it's a high F-stop. And what that really affects is all your depth of field, which I think we talk about, um, later in the podcast, Right. but I would definitely say my style of photography tends to lend itself towards, I love blurry out of focus, weird photos, because I, I specialize all in kind of fine art side of things. So, you know, aperture playing with that aperture of, you know, open it up super wide And then just see what you can do with it um, at something like that, where it has a crazy tiny depth of field um, playing with that and then shooting it very, very small aperture. That's where you're getting everything essentially in focus and, I think it's really important to put your camera over in manual and start playing with those things as it relates to shutter speed, because you'll start seeing how, yeah, you open up your aperture just one or two stops wider. And all of a sudden there's this huge rush of light and you have to figure out how to change that according to your shutter speed and, you know, a few other things.
0: Good stuff. Yeah. You guys have said a lot of things that uh, really resonates with me because I just finished my principles of photography class at the university and where I have people that are just Hardly even they, you know, hardly even snap on their cell phone, let alone a uh, quote unquote real camera. And this idea of wrapping our minds around this thing that we call the exposure triangle, we just basically talked about two of those ideas of of what we call the exposure triangle. It can be really kind of um, daunting, I guess, especially when you get to that aperture. You mentioned, you know, because you have an inverse of those numbers that we read off, but that it's because it's a, it's a, what the true value is is that it's a um, it's a fraction. So it's mm-hmm. f divided by 2.8, 5.6, 4, whatever your f-stop is. And so when you look at it as a fraction, and if you were to actually do the math, then you have that, that relationship of bigger number equals bigger opening, smaller mm-hmm. number equals smaller opening. But we tend to get rid of that top part of the fraction and we just go with the lower part of the fraction, what it's being divided by. And that can be a little confusing. And then we also have another thing. When you're at, let's say, F2.8, if you were to move one stop you know, down in the aperture, you're going to F4. And then you move should... another stop, and you're going to F5.6. And then you move another stop, mm-hmm. and you're going to F8. Well, if you see that pattern from F2.8 from uh, to F5.6, that's a doubling of the number. From F4 to F8, that's a doubling of the number. And so... When we have the doubling of the number in the fo- in the uh, shutter speed, uh, it makes sense to do that because we're dealing with time. But we have when we have a doubling of the number in the aperture, it doesn't make sense because it doesn't go immediately. One stop is a doubling of the number. It's because we're dealing with area and it's a calculation yeah, of the area, yeah. and that can just get mind-boggling. So your recommendation of just stick <clears throat> it in manual and play with it, get used to it, get a feel for it. You know, that's really um, it's the kind of thing where I say. I, I, I liken this to when I was in high school chemistry, I was just like, oh my goodness, I'll just have to learn it. And hopefully later I'll understand it.
1: <laughs> and well, I did. It's one of those things. I mean, there, I think people have different, different ways of doing things. So I yeah. still have photographer friends that are trying to figure out their exposure and they're like, oh, I need to do one stop here. Half this half one third, you know, they're going through all the math of it. And I never think of the math. I just kind of have a feel for it, you know, where I'm like, I feel like if I roll this many clicks, it's gonna be right. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So there
1: actually is. uh, When I think of it, there's no math involved. Right? Yeah, I know plenty of photographers that are to the T with the math. So I mean, you'll figure out your own way to do it, and you'll and you'll figure out what feels right. And I shoot primarily on as wide of an aperture as it'll go, even though the lenses a lot of times say. know, if the lens is 2.0, they say, don't shoot a 2.0, shoot it, you know, 2.8, just to make sure it it maintains it as sharp as it can. I don't believe in that. If the lens says 2.0, I'm shooting a (laughs) (laughs) 2.0 because I bought the lens. I'm shooting at the maximum aperture. Um, And so for a lot of times it's, it's playing with that shutter speed and it's getting a feel of everything else. But yeah, if the math feels daunting, I think understanding the math is essential to understanding how everything works, but don't think you have to be a mathematician and sit there and do the calculations while you're shooting. You you don't have to necessarily um, look at it that way after you get a feel of how it all works. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah.
2: One thing that helps me, that helps me quite a lot was, was starting to do long exposures at nighttime.
0: Sure. Because
2: because, like I'll turn up the ISO really high to get a framing for my photographs. Um, so that, you know, the, the picture is going to look pretty terrible with all the noise that I get at a really high ISO, like, like 100,000 ISO or something. Um, but I can do that at, uh, like a fifth of a second and see what my frame looks like. See what my, my composition looks like. And then drop the ISO way down and then extend the, the shutter speed. And, um, instead of waiting 30 seconds between pictures to see what my composition looks like. Um, and so when I'm way up there, as I turn my ISO down, I just count the number of ticks I go down right. and that's how many
0: ticks I go up on my shutter speed.
1: See, that's right. perfect. That's brilliant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and that's all that you just need to no know. Simple addition. I went down right. three here and I got to go up three there and that's all you got to yeah. do. Exactly.
2: It doesn't matter what the number is. Yeah. Uh, at least when you're on a tripod, it doesn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about ISO just a little bit, too. This is the. Are we teaching
2: your class right now? Is that why you're recording? Is this <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> your the class is over. It's just I happen to think about uh, it. Hey, you guys, are, you're, you're sounding familiar here. <laughs> I just,
2: yeah, you're you're going to set a boombox on the table for this section next semester. Yeah. Maybe,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe if I if I get sick or something, I can just say, here, listen to this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is all you need. Uh, with the ISO, that is basically the relative sensitivity of your sensor. So how much light is needed to get what we would consider a proper exposure. And you, if you have it less sensitive, then you need more light coming in. If you have it more sensitive to light, then you need less of it to get a good exposure. And those are represented in whole numbers, uh, usually uh, starting at 100. Some cameras will start at 200. Some will start other places and you can, you know, they, they vary uh, with exactly where they start. But when you double the number, like from 100 to 200, you're making it twice as sensitive. And then when you double it again to 400, again, it's twice as sensitive as it was at the 400. So it goes in this, it has the same exact relationship of doubling each time or having each time in its sensitivity. But it's just about what is the base level of sensitivity and how much light will you then need to put in there to get yourself a good exposure. How do I do on that one?
1: (laughs) To go on off of what Levi said about like shooting at long exposures at night and you know, ISO gets really important on stuff like that. I, this is a big part of shooting underwater because water cuts out about five sixths of the light. So, it looks like there's a lot of light down there and there isn't. Right. When you drop below the surface it's just instant dark essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so you could kind of see. But for the most part it is really dark and then if you go down another foot or two I mean it the light just drops off at a massive rate. So ISO when I first started out like shooting Um, shooting with a camera that has not, not very high ISO capabilities that was really affecting anything I was doing down there because you can't open up the aperture too wide because you're moving and your subject, you're both moving at the same time. So it kills your depth of field. So you have to have somewhat of a stopped down aperture. You've got to be at like F4, F5.6, or, you know, a higher aperture, um, in order to create the depth of field you want. And because of that you have to have some kind of camera with an ISO capabilities that you can raise the sensitivity to a certain level. Otherwise it's just grain and blurriness and you don't really get a lot of what's going on down there. Yeah. Good point.
2: At the same time, like ISO is the least, it's the last one that I worry about. Um, I choose the aperture for creative reasons. Like, like Mm -hmm. Jenna was saying, Mm -hmm. that's, that's the primary creative tool most of the time. And then so if if aperture is my creative tool, then I make sure that the shutter speed is fast enough to get a sharp picture at that aperture. And then if it's, if it's not, then I raise the ISO to give me more shutter speed. So like ISO is basically a function of shutter speed for Mm -hmm. the most part. And, and then other times my shutter speed is my, is my creative control where like if I'm photographing the stars and I want them to be, I want streaks. Then that's, that's important to me. Or if I'm, if I'm doing second uh, shutter flash portraits and I want movement and then a sharp subject, then that, that shutter speed is, is really important. And so I'm just moving the ISO to give me the shutter speed that I want with the aperture that I need. And, and I'm the least worried about it. Like I deliver pictures at 3,200 ISO all the time and I'm shooting a micro four thirds sensor.
1: Oh, I've shot it. I shoot it probably close to 10,000 sometimes underwater. I mean, I will crank the crap out of that thing if I need to. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Like if if, if you really need to fix it, there's fixable tools out there. There is. But don't worry about it.
1: And plus, you know, I kind of, um, because I like things that are a little bit blurry or distorted or uh, that kind of odd imagery, imagery, um, I really love playing with a super high ISO yeah. Like, bring the grain, bring it on, bring <laughs> the noise. Let's just see what it does, you know? Yeah. Um, if you need to put some kind of a an ND filter on and shoot in the middle of the day with a cranked ISO just to see what happens, uh, that's, you know, that kind of stuff. ND filters aren't that expensive. I mean, they're, what, 10 bucks sometimes? Yeah. If, if that, yeah. I mean, just to, to grab something like that. And then I think it's just important to, you know, put your camera in manual and just push every single possible setting what does it look like when you shoot at the highest possible uh shutter speed the lowest slowest possible shutter speed the highest iso the lowest iso you know what are the differences so you, you can get a feel for it
2: yeah and, and do it with a fixed lens so you're not distracted by zooming at the same oh, time yeah
1: yeah
0: absolutely
2: um and if if all else fails crank up the the noise reduction in lightroom yeah Make like a pasty <laughs> like picture and then turn it black and white and turn on the grain. And now it looks like a great photograph.
1: <laughs> exactly. Or you can just it, you you kind of you guys. An and end up with a Barbie
0: photo. You're killing me over here. <laughs> no,
1: <it's not>. <laughs> you're <laughs> like, don't it do any of that stuff. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I
0: have like done that stuff.
1: Paper. It looks
2: like grainy photographic paper. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Huh. I And I have done those things. It's just, how do I put it? You know, Le- Levi, when you're saying, you know, ISO is the last thing you think about. Uh, usually, actually, for for my style, and this goes back to where, where Jenna was saying, you're going to figure out what works for you. And so, you know, this is this is my my take on that. This is what works for me. I tend to be a little more concerned about the ISO because I do want to uh, I have dreams, let's say, of being able to print big or being able to just absorb myself in the fine qualities and the details. And if we want lower digital noise, then we got to have that lower ISO usually. But putting all that into into context, if your situation calls for it, like you're down in the water or mm-hmm. you know nighttime or whatever the case is, of course, I'm of the opinion. I'm, I say, push it. Yeah. Do whatever you need to do to get the shot. There's no problem with that. It's just... If, if I'm going to go out in my standard landscape mode, my standard you know street photography mode, what have you, I'll set the ISO where I normally have a good starting point. So landscape on a tripod, hundred. That's usually where I'm at. I don't care what the shutter speed is usually. And mm-hmm. my aperture is going to be in the neighborhood of five, six to eight, because that's the sharpest that the lens is going to produce. So it's just, you know, just depends on what your goals are for where you're going. But with what you said there, Levi about convert to black and white and all that stuff, um, <laughs> I think of an image I shot in India, uh, literally just hanging myself out the window. And I saw this, uh, roadside, you know, hovel basically coming up where this family is living. And it's a fantastic, I just love everything about that image, the motion blur that's there because I'm speeding by at around 40 miles an hour. Um, but then I had a high enough ISO to, to still capture and you see the details but I totally had to do exactly what you said, black and white, crank up the noise reduction, put in some yeah. grain. And then I printed that sucker like three or four feet wide on yeah. some nice fine art paper. Oh my, it's just like, well,
2: that's the oh, other thing. Oh, it's awesome. It's print- it doesn't matter either.
0: No, and it was only a 12.8 megapixel camera. It was the original 5D. Yeah. So it was a really low res camera too. So, you know, everything was coming together still. Every, it was just still a, a great image. Uh, and and there's so much that's capable even with 2005 technology, making it, you know, making it work in a large print, there's still so much that you can do. Um, it's just like Jenna was saying, push the limit so you know what you can do. And that's that's where you're going to have some successes. That's good.
1: Well, and, yeah. and, you know, I I used to be afraid of ISO in terms of I used to be afraid of, uh, you know, I, I really wanted that print to be like you said, I, I wanted to be able to pay attention to the details and have it be as um, as, as detailed and as sharp and as I possibly could. So I was really looking for that low ISO. So when I started shooting underwater, seriously, I, I wanted, I needed to have the better camera that could crank that ISO and I could still get a yeah. really good quality image. And now it's, you know, now I've kind of found my style. I've gone back to shooting a lot more film where I'll just borrow a friend's camera, just some old trashy thing. And I'm like, I'm going to put that in my housing and I'm just going to crank the ISO and it's gonna the photos are gonna be absolute crap, but I might get one that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's really grainy, and I can maybe I'll just do a double exposure with it or something, you know. But yeah, just it's about kind of playing and finding finding what it is you like. Now knowing my style is a little more obscure and and you know it's it's not as much of a sharp perfect image as I used to go for in the past. You know, ISO isn't near as scary as it used to be. Yeah. And yeah. one,
0: one thing before we move on to Exposure the Triangle, there was a photographer, Bob Christ, years ago, probably 10 to 15 years ago. He did a series in Tuscany where he had 1600 film pushed to 3200 and he had so many filters and so many things in front of it. But the ethereal nature that just came out of those images was just absolutely amazing. And there's definitely good things um, to look up and um, and explore there for for just Going crazy with whether you're film or otherwise high ISO and the like. You were going to say something else there, Levi. I think I cut, cut yeah, you off. Yeah, the, the
2: the most like to me the the fact is that a sharp, noisy picture is infinitely better than a fine grained, blurry picture, and like, that's that's what it comes down to. I need to raise my ISO. Yep. To get a short photograph.
1: See, I'll you're... take the fine grained blurry picture. I'll, I'll take it. If I shoot a portrait and there is nothing in focus but like one eyelash, I am in love.
2: Yes, I, I, that's the thing, right? Is that you know? I think one out of focus picture is a mistake. Ten is yeah. an experiment, and a hundred is a style. There you go.
1: Yeah. No, I, I love I love it so much. I think some of my favorite photos that I shot was I. How do I explain this? I was shooting through my camera through the viewfinder I was shooting through my camera into the viewfinder of a toy camera and then yeah it was it was really it was like I was combining three cameras in one long shot and it was it was basically going through all these different um lenses and it it was very odd I was just playing and I love those photos more than anything it was it was just fun you know cool yeah
0: so this next one this is number two finally (laughs) exposure (laughs) triangle And that is really just about these three items we've talked about, the shutter, aperture, and ISO. And so if you hear that term exposure triangle, we're just having a relationship and recognizing the relationship that all these things have on your exposure. And it's just about matching them. Like Levi said, you know, two or three ticks on one, then you take away two or three ticks on the other. I guess the only thing you got to make sure is make sure you're going the right way. Because if you go two or three ticks on one, and as you go three ticks on the other, then you've overexposed the shot uh, by two stops instead of equaling out the the exposure. But anyway, uh, the exposure triangle is that that relationship of those items. So Levi, uh, tell us a little bit about the histogram. So just kind of trying to grow somewhat naturally, I guess, out of exposure because histogram is certainly related to exposure. And so uh, give us this idea your your two cents worth on this idea of the histogram and in particular using it in camera.
2: Sure it's, it's just kind of a graph that shows you how bright different areas of your picture are. And there's, there's five segments to it. And and the dark side of the graph is on the left and the bright side is on the right. And, um, and then you've got this, these lines, this mass of, of brightness that goes up and down in each of these different segments from the left to the right. And the, like the, if you took a picture of a gray piece of paper, it would have this nice little bell-shaped curve in the middle, sure. uh, and and that's you know that's fine. People have often said, "But look at the histogram; it looks terrible." But like a histogram doesn't tell you anything about your photograph except how bright certain things are. It has nothing. It it doesn't know that you're photographing a black horse on a black backdrop, which in that case, all the all the vertical lines in the excuse me, in the histogram should be to the left. And it doesn't know that you're photographing a, a bride in the snow in, in a white dress, in which case almost all the vertical lines should be to the right, uh, crammed up against that far right side. Um, and so it when you do have things crammed right up against the far right side and touching the far right side, that means that you have things that are are overexposed or, or clipped and there's no um there's no changing the information that's there you won't be able to change the brightness of that it's just white and conversely if it's over to the left and it's clipped to the left you will have uh just solid black areas in your photograph and so you know ideally we're trying to get something that's not quite solid black so you've got a little a little latitude to play with it in in software and something that's not quite clipped to the right so you've got some latitude to play with it in software interestingly 80% 80% of your photograph is in the the right 20% of that graph. And so
0: you just went and confused everyone there.
2: <laughs> when you when you make a very bright picture, a very like like a picture of snow that's all white, you'll see that that file size is actually bigger than a picture of something all black. And there's just a lot more information that your camera can can take in in a bright photograph. And there's less information that your camera's taking in in a very dark photograph.
0: And 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 this speaks uh, to that logarithmic scale that we were talking about uh, of how light is interpreted and stored by the camera. But also, uh, I'm going to go back to something you said, you know, if you photograph a gray piece of paper, you could do that with a white piece of paper, too. Exactly. Because the camera, if you remove everything, from it that it's looking for. You know, it's looking for blue sky. It's looking for maybe a face. It's looking for these things that it, quote, knows what they are, especially with lots of AI going on these days in our cameras. But if you remove all that information of what the camera is expecting and you just give it a white piece of paper, the light meter will want to, by default, put that in the center. And that means it's going to, the histogram is going to spike in the center.
2: Right. You've got to tell your camera this is white and it should be bright. It should be way over here right. to the right. Or if you're photographing that black horse or a, a groom in a black tuxedo in front of a uh, the shady side of a blue spruce tree, then you've got to tell it, no, this is a dark photograph. It should be over here on the left.
0: So Jenna, let's, let's continue this idea with the histogram and this idea of exposing to the right or anything else you want to add about the histogram too.
1: You know, I would say just to... You know, I think I think sometimes it's intimidating to go against your current camera to be looking at your histogram and yeah. your camera saying this is how it should be exposed. And especially if you're just starting out, you're going, OK, this is what this is what the camera said. Um, you know, you're a human being. You can look and see that. Yeah, it's a black horse and white snow this is yeah this is the camera is clearly reading all of this white snow and saying this is way too bright you have to you know stop this down when in actuality you know that's not the case and there are some metering options you can use to get around that so if you use spot metering you can you can put that spot right on that black horse and say this is what i want exposed i don't care about anything else i just want this black horse to be exposed where you have to be careful is, like Levi said, to make sure nothing is getting clipped. Otherwise, it's just going to turn out as a perfectly exposed black horse on a piece of white paper instead of looking like it's in snow. Right. You know, it's not going to be any texture or anything there. So I think as long as you are making sure not to clip, you should be okay. But don't be afraid of of pushing this. I, I think underwater, I shoot, I would guess, probably 90% uh, slightly overexposed to the right. And it's because there is so much crap in water, so much backscatter and particles and everything that to shoot at the proper exposure and then try and pull some of the shadows up in post, it brings out so much crap. It is just, it doesn't look good. Whereas if I slightly overexpose and then in post, maybe I have to darken those shadows slightly, it's fine. Everything's completely fine. That still results in a good image. So I probably expose, overexpose, and push to the right. I would say in the underwater work, probably about 90% of the time, it's pretty common that I do that. And I also, there was a photographer that I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. It was years ago that I heard, he was on an interview with some photographer where he was talking about how he overexposes his images quite a bit. And he said, you know, when you're shooting into the sun, you're shooting into into the sun, It you know, to have it all be a perfect image. He didn't think that was very true to life because when you're looking into the sun, it is too bright. You don't see a lot of what you're looking at. You know, it's, it's too bright. It's too much. And he liked his photos to reflect that. So he tended to overexpose, um, as much as he possibly could in a situation like that, because he likes that idea of it being true to life and being very, um, he does that, that a lot of the image would be distorted because of all that light. Hmm. So I think it comes down to a lot of personal preference and, you know, being, being okay and, and having enough confidence in yourself to kind of go against what your camera says once in a while and to, to get the image that you genuinely want.
0: Sounds good. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and Levi exposing to the left, that idea you, you kind of touched on a little bit, but what would be a, a, a scenario to where you would expose to the left?
2: Um, yeah, where where it's a dark photograph. Anyway, like my camera just sees the scene and it says, "Whoa, that's too dark. Let's make it gray." "Whoa, that's too bright. Let's make it gray." And so, anytime the picture is is a little darker, which is like grass is like minus two thirds, um, it should be darker. Uh, trees should be darker. Um, people wearing black clothes or having dark skin should be darker, um, and so. Anytime I've got a dark photograph, I try to make it a dark photograph and, and I like that kind of moodiness. My, mm-hmm. my portraits are typically dark, um, uh, very like, I like a, a, a dark gray or a dark brown backdrop with the, a, with the a, a face popping out kind of thing. Um, and I just lost the thing I was going to say, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, you don't need to worry about what your what your camera meter is telling you. Oh, that that's what I love about shooting a mirrorless camera. I, I, yeah. I use Panasonic cameras, and I see in my viewfinder how dark the photograph is right now. And having that immediate view in my eyeball lets me lets me you know finish the vision I've got in mind mm-hmm. right now. And so I, I love to be able to see what the photograph is going to look like before I even take it.
1: And if you're looking through the, view, the viewfinder and you're looking at it and you're going, this is too dark. I should, I should expose to the left. Uh, I mean, trust yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, take another photo. <laughs>
2: yeah. And, and this is something that you'll get a feel for because your camera is looking at that scene with the JPEG in mind. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably shooting raw and you have a lot more latitude of it. Like, like Jenna was saying, she it overexposes and is able to bring it, bring it back under control in post because that raw file has so much mm-hmm. more latitude than what the camera is actually examining, which is for a JPEG file, which is kind of silly.
0: <laughs> well, that so,
1: little, you know, there's, uh,
0: sorry, go ahead, uh, Jenna.
1: It, it has to say there's, you know, there's ways you'll hear people talk about, um, it's like I've heard it through and through, you've got to get it, you've got to get it perfectly right in camera. Don't worry about port post. And it's like with underwater, if I want to get it perfectly right in camera, I'm gonna pick up a lot of that backscatter and a lot of that crap, and I'm gonna to have to just sit there and edit it out and post and gonna take hours. Or I yeah. could overexpose and pull it down and it's perfect and I love it. And I yeah. don't have to worry about that stuff. So, you know, even, even when you're hearing people go, well, I don't know, you shouldn't overexpose this, shouldn't underexpose, you know, let your camera do. Ah, screw it. Just, you know, play around. And if you think it needs to be underexposed or overexposed, at least try it just to see what you end up with.
2: Absolutely. Photography, like the camera has never been more than a third of a photograph. There's, there's always been the camera work, the, the darker, well, the, the developing work and the printing work. And mm-hmm. that has always been the case. It's not, like, it's not like Ansel Adams was getting it right in camera.
1: He wasn't. He absolutely wasn't. No. You
2: know, it's never been the case. And so to say, I like to get it right in camera. You are truncating your creative possibilities. So, yeah,
1: I agree. S-
0: sounds good. So let's move on to lighting, and maybe I should switch you guys up because uh, Levi, you started to talk about uh, this dark, moody lighting that you like <laughs> to do. Uh, do you want to take uh, that? Don't one? Don't
1: switch us. No. Okay.
0: Uh, so you're, you're you're stuck with clamshell then, Levi.
2: That is just fine. Um, I often have used a clamshell, and I'll I'll work it for a darkness anyway. Um, so clamshell lighting is is using one source of light, one light, typically, and it's uh, it's directly in front of your subject, and it create it's a it's a very frontal lighting. And if you've ever watched the classic Star Treks with uh, uh, Captain Kirk and and Spock, they use um, frontal lighting, the the paramount lighting all the time. And it's, it's comical to watch the the lighting in that show because it's just so fake.
1: Isn't (laughs) that, isn't that like, I gotta ask, isn't that hilarious now that as a photographer, when you're watching these television shows or movies, you're going, I know exactly how they're lighting that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: My wife, like if, if it's not well lit, I can't watch the show. Right.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Or I watch like, like stranger things. And I'll go, Oh, they have a gel on that side. Like I know that yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt are like with a gel, but, yeah. it,
2: but it keeps me in the story. So I'm okay. Mm-hmm. With, exactly.
1: No.
0: And, and, but so. the spouse has got to be saying, shut up. <laughs> Cause yeah, my, my wife says that, you know, when they get something wrong, technically like with a, Oh, you know, the, the computer is processing a billion times per second or whatever. Like, no, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not the
0: case. <laughs> exactly you no know,
1: it's i think my my husband's favorite thing is the he he recognizes it now when they use the artificial camera shutter sound yeah right where you're like that's not what that camera sounds like at all <laughs> but right. they have the well, artificial sound and sound
2: over an icon
1: yeah <laughs> that's
0: right now uh, levi trying to get back on track a little bit here yeah, which exactly. derailments are fine i'm not i'm not complaining at all but um you mentioned one light, but usually with a clamshell, you've got something coming underneath too. So like at least a yes. reflector, right?
2: Yeah. So you, you start with this one light and it's typically angled at like a 45 degree angle towards your subject space. And it's usually pretty close. It's going to be like barely out of frame. The best way to do it is with a light stand and a boom, if you can, so that the the light is is not directly over the light stand. Because if it is, you have to put your camera shooting through the light stand and and I've done that plenty of times, and it's a pain. <laughs> you get you get not quite like light clamshell lighting if yeah. you have your light directly on the light stand. So it's best to have it on a boom. So, like I'm imagining in my mind, the the light stand is on is on my left with the boom coming off and the light directly over my subject's face, and the the subject is looking directly into the camera. This light is shining straight down, and it's typically on a woman. It's typically a beauty kind of lighting, and so. This light is shining straight down on her face. And then underneath, so when it's just shining straight down, you've got this paramount lighting, this this Hollywood lighting, and butterfly lighting. They call it butterfly because it supposedly makes a butterfly-shaped shadow under the nose, which is ridiculous. Um, but they call it paramount De- depends lighting. Depends on
0: your nose shape and all that, of course.
2: Exactly, it Absolutely depends
0: on the nose shape.
2: I mean, like mine's like a vampire shape, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, it's also called Paramount lighting because in Hollywood they used to do this all the time. Like like Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe has got this this light shining straight down on her face, and it's it, if you've got great skin, it can be really beautiful. <laughs> for for the rest of us, um, you need to soften this light and fill in the shadow cast by this light because otherwise, every bump in the skin is going to be visible in your photograph. So to do this, you put a reflector at a forty-five degree angle, coming up from underneath. Or possibly flat, play with it and and see what kind of things you like. And it doesn't need to be like a five foot wide reflector. Often in in beauty circles, it's like a 12 inch circle reflector, which to me means it's a white cardboard
0: box mm-hmm. that's, that's been cut <laughs> into a circle.
2: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't even have to be a circle. Although um, I, I think you typically you'll match the shape of the top light with the shape of the bottom light because, this light is low enough that the, the top, the, the flash itself is low enough that it's just shining into the eyeballs. And the reflector is high enough that you're catching the reflection of it into the eye as well. And so you get these two catch lights and, and it's very flattering. It makes eyes look very bright. And um, and that reflector underneath reduces the, the darkness of the shadow under the nose and under the chin and is very flattering. It, it helps people look less heavy and it reduces the texture in the skin so that you've got a lot less work to do in, uh, in Photoshop and Lightroom. And it's called a clamshell because you've got that top light at a 45 degree angle and that bottom reflector at a 45 degree angle. And it, it looks like a clam is trying to eat your subject
0: nice (laughs) and literally it's close enough so the the if the model were to reach out they should be able to touch those lights right i mean these these are really close to the subject
2: typically just barely out of frame or even in frame and you're going to crop it or you're going to to remove it in post sure yeah
0: so jenna tell us about rembrandt lighting
1: Oh so Rembrandt like the reason I, I I really wanted to talk about this one cuz Rembrandt yeah. has a very special place for me okay. when I yeah. first started photography um because I was already in I was already kind of leaning towards anything fine art or documentary style I I was seeing all these images that they were Rembrandt lighting. I didn't know that though. I just thought they were beautiful images, and I was googling and going through YouTube trying to find lighting techniques. And surprisingly, Rembrandt wasn't coming up. It was a lot of different studio lighting techniques. And every time mm-hmm. I was going through these studio lighting, I was, I was kind of, I, I guess, uninspired or something. It just seemed very. Um, professional and clean and studio. And I wasn't interested in that style of shooting. So when I finally found that, you know, this kind of single light with tons, because Rembrandt has, it really uses shadows. It takes advantage of the shadows on the face. And it's not about you know, like with the clamshell, you want the face illuminated. It is for women. It is for beauty shots. You want to see all the skin texture and the makeup. And, you know, when you're looking at a clamshell shot, there is nothing that you cannot see. Like it is all there and it's beautiful and it's illuminated and it's gorgeous. And Rembrandt, Rembrandt lighting, there is a lot that you can't see. Sometimes it's, you know, the vast majority of the subject you can't see. You just see a single light um, kind of coming over their eyes, it's kind of known for that little triangle of light beh- underneath one eye. And so there's, you know, a lot of times their mouth or their chin, their jaw, all of that might even be in the dark. You might even not see a lot of it. So it's just kind of this dark and moody and mysterious way of lighting And it's not that difficult. A lot of times it is one single light source, something very, very soft. I think that's kind of the the key. And to make sure that there's no other light coming from anywhere. So whereas, you know, you might have a fill light over here, you might do some stuff. Rembrandt is that one light coming from a lot of times a 45 degree angle. But I'd even argue sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's even a full know, directly next to your subject, if it's a window. Um, and you, you can even kind of view it from that, from that angle. But uh, I think an important part of it is that there is mystery involved. And so you're not seeing all of the background. Um, you're seeing their eyes and a little bit of their face and then their hair kind of fades into black or their hair fades away into something. And I think one of the most important things is if there is background in your photo, if you are using Rembrandt lighting and they, you can see some of the environment, the environment has to be 100% something that is relevant to that photo. So uh, you'll see a lot in documentary work of the subject sitting in the environment that is very important to that photo. It's, um, it matters where they are, and that's why you'll see the environment, whereas Rembrandt lighting – in um, where in other kind of forms, it's just the subject and the background is black or it's a single sure. dark color, and you don't see a lot of it because it really draws focus to the emotion of the picture and the emotion of that subject. It's not necessarily about creating a a um, pleasing photograph. It's about creating a striking emotional photograph. I would say.
0: Sure. Sounds yeah.
1: good. And if could I throw in? Sure. Yeah.
2: Camera position is is essentially Mm -hmm. like is d key to rembrandt so if you've got a clamshell light set up and you're shooting straight onto your subject if you just ask your subject so like i had my yeah if you just ask your subject to take a step to the right and then if you go 90 degrees to the right and photograph back so so now you've you've got their their faces facing leftward in your frame now now you've got rembrandt lighting because Mm -hmm. Because my camera is at angle to the, to the light on my subject. And exactly. you'll, you'll never get Rembrandt lighting if you put your camera on the same side as the light.
1: Right. Yes. But
2: they have That's to the be point. opposite. They have to be in, in contrast to each other.
0: There has to be some um, angle there. Yeah. Yeah. You're
1: looking for the shadows. It's not, yeah it gets you can't stress that enough. It's not about, you know, illuminating the face so you see everything. You know, high school senior photos, that's not Rembrandt lighting. That is no, right. You know, that's full-on <laughs> pretty girl, everything. You're yeah. looking for it's the artist photo at the back of the book, you know, where <laughs> they they look serious and thoughtful. That's usually the Rembrandt lighting that you're looking at there.
2: Exactly. Well, and just look up the look up Rembrandt and yeah. look, like it looks like everything he painted was done in this room with a window about yes. eight feet off the floor <laughs> shining down on a subject. And and yeah, like like you said, environmental portraits are always this way because it's so interesting. It shows us the shape of the face. It shows us the the intriguing details and experience of a person.
1: It is. You're wondering like what are they thinking? What, you know, it's it's more about that individual than it is, you know, just a general model. It's it's almost like if you could, you know, clamshell lighting is for the model. You don't really care who that person is. You care right. more about what they're representing, whereas Rembrandt it's is more same. you want yeah. to know about that individual. Who is exactly. that person?
2: Yeah. Exactly. So whenever whenever I'm forced to use clamshell lighting and I say forced, <laughs> I I always <laughs> have my subject step to the right and I step to the right and I I shoot some Rembrandt as well. Uh, there's this there's this photograph of Jacques Cousteau. It it epitomizes. It's like it's I like, I wish I knew who did it.
1: <laughs> I probably do. I know the photograph. <laughs> yeah, you
2: know the photograph I'm talking I'm about. I'm
1: somewhat yeah. familiar with Jacques Cousteau, yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. right. And and it's it's just so typical of it. And it just it's the way to go. <laughs> now it's not it's not a realtor headshot. You know, no. it's not it's exactly. not what the realtor yeah. wants to have showing their their experience and things, which is silly, because <laughs> everyone would remember it. If right. I photographed like Jacques Cousteau and you were on a billboard, everybody would know that. Billboard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it's when you want to look mysterious and deep, then you go for yeah. the bright lighting.
2: <laughs> it's dramatic for sure. Yeah. So, uh, can, can I throw in here real quick? Sure. Um, if it, like to balance a portrait, it often works well if your subject is kind of wearing clothes that are a similar tone to the background, like if I, if I do a, a person in in a beige jacket on a black background, it just, it doesn't jive well. But if I do, if they're wearing a beige jacket and I put them on like a dark Brown background or, or a lighter Brown background, or, or even a white background, it's going to look better. Um, and so you can, it's hard to, you can, make a let me start over you can make that dramatic look with the light on your subject's face but if you can make your your subject's clothing and the and the surrounding area jive as well it's so much more powerful
1: and I tend to use that in a different way where if I'm if I'm doing Rembrandt lighting and I have a subject in their clothing and they have the background I like to make the clothing and the background busy so I want lots of Lots of stuff going on in the background and lots of stuff going on in their clothing so that it matches. Like you said, so it that it jives. Yeah. You know, yeah. to make that kind of match, even though, because it doesn't, it's never overwhelming. The, the light is on the face. So that background's going to fade out anyway. Okay. But yes, to make that, to make the subject and the background still go together. Because in the Rembrandt paintings, it almost looks like they're kind of sucked into the wall in a way, you know? Exactly.
2: Like they're wearing like these gold tones and there's gold tones in the tablecloth behind them. And- exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. The next item on our list is back button focus. First off, I just curious, do either of you guys use this, uh, use this technique? Only if I need to cuss a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. I say I'm not a fan. I, people oh, have that's... been telling me for years to use it, especially underwater. They're like, how yeah. do you not use this underwater? You're yeah. both moving. It yeah. makes perfect sense. Why aren't uh, you using no, it? I, I just don't like it. I don't, I don't think don't know I would what use it, it
0: underwater. I there's, there's sometimes I finally, shall I say air quotes broke down and gave it a try. And for many of my, you know, different shootings or whatever you want to call it, especially my landscape, I'm actually liking it because I just achieve focus once. And then as the light changes or whatever the case is, I just take another shot and I don't have to worry about the camera reestablishing focus on something I don't want it to focus on. Mm-hmm. So I do like it in that sense. And I, I can see how it's going to be uh, helpful for some sports photographers uh, so they can almost you know, more or less guarantee when they hit that button, it's going to shoot. Even if it's a little bit out of focus, they know it's going to shoot. Um, well,
2: then I just set my camera to to release priority instead of focus priority. Yeah, you can yeah, do that yeah, too.
1: <laughs> there's true. It's so many ways around it. Yeah, there's yeah. so many different ways to to kind of accomplish the same thing. Yes. I think once you find, yeah, yeah, once you find one of those ways, it's not um, I don't know, I, I've run into Sony photographers who are dead set on back button focus. Yes. you'd think they were a, a back button focus salesman or something like that. <laughs> That they want, they want to convert everyone to back button focus. If, if That is their life goal. Yeah. And I just, I've tried it and I'm just not a fan.
0: Yeah. I, I can totally understand that because in, in some sets of some, some styles of shooting, I just totally not a fan either. And I, and certainly I'm just used to, uh, it, it, there was one time actually when I went and I, I was, went out with my camera It had been a little while. And I, after I had just switched and had been a little while, I'm like, this stupid thing isn't working. What's going on? Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I activated that fucking focus. How about right. that? Uh, yes. So for those who don't know, it's it's a mechanism by which you would program a button that's near your thumb to activate the autofocus and you deactivate the autofocus on your shutter release button. Because normally your behavior is you press your shutter release button halfway down and then that activates the autofocus and then you fully depress the shutter release button and then it takes the picture. So by disassociating that with the af function that's what we're talking about just in case there happened to be someone who didn't know what that was about
1: and even it i mean it is kind of i mean it still even sounds kind of complicated just to hear it i even know what it does and yeah. hearing it explained sounds kind of complicated still but um yeah i mean i think yeah i mean try it out if it i would audit, i would honestly just recommend going to somebody go, call a friend of yours who knows how to do back button and who loves doing it. Have them show you how to do it, how to set it up, everything, play around with it. And if you love it, use it. If you don't, don't. Um, But yeah, I tried, I tried on YouTube tutorials and then I had some people show me how to do it. And I've just never quite fallen in love with it. So,
2: right. And it's not going to make your pictures better. It's not going to make you a better photographer. It it belongs on like page 100 of the things you need to do to become a better photographer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Oh, just for the sake of arguing, I feel like arguing, but I, but I think I'll let that go because <laughs> I, I agree with you. It's not going to make a better photographer. You're you're absolutely right. Um, I, I fail to see how it would anyway. Uh, but again, that's just, you know, that's that's our shooting styles and what we're used to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a few other uh, hosts. I think Jeff really likes it. And there's a few others. Yeah, they're just like, this is what we always do.
1: Jeff and, would like it. He likes anything that's technically difficult. <laughs> right. like, ooh, anything that's up. a little technically difficult, he is really good at. And um, yeah, I am I like the easy stuff. And...
0: So what you're saying is he he uses, and people like him uses, the litmus test of, does this make me more nerdy? <laughs> right,
1: yeah. and, Maybe.
2: And, uh, is this going to make my instructor cuss when I hand him my camera? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly i'm not a swearing man but i will swear when you hit me
0: <laughs> <laughs> well we need to um we need to wrap up this episode but you know what uh listeners we're actually going to continue this whole idea with version two next week all right so we have some reminders for you guys and that is of course the home of the show is master photography and also find us in the facebook groups we've got over eighty five hundred members, I think, which is just awesome, so thank you for joining up and being a part of the community online there and that's where a lot of these uh, items uh, that we talked about today uh, they they were generated with ideas from listeners, so I really appreciate that and so you will have to answer a question so that is one of the hosts or guest hosts of the podcast so certainly Jenna, if you were to say Jenna or Levi myself, and then the rest of the podcast members are certainly good as well so Uh, Which whatever works for you and answering that question, we get at least as many people asking to join that do not answer questions. And so my thumb then slips over that decline button. But So if you want to join the group, please make sure you answer that question. And then we're also having a little bit of a Instagram account. So at Master Photography Podcast, you can find us there. Uh, For my work, you can find everything related to me at my website, brentbergherm.com, where I've got uh, some workshops listed, uh, the print course that I had mentioned, Uh, certainly my other podcast, the one that I do, Latitude Photography Podcast. That is where we focus on outdoor and travel photography. So anything landscape, outdoor related and travel photos related. Jenna, where can they find you online?
1: Um, my my website just jenna martin and I'm on instagram at Jenna Martin photo and then I also host the creative chaos podcast which is pretty much everything on the art side of photography it kind of focuses on creativity and artistic careers as a whole but since i am I'm a fine art photographer and I do a lot of writing for a living. I would say it's pretty fine art photography and writing heavy. Awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's over. It's a, there's another, there's two podcasts that are under creative chaos name and mine is the creative chaos podcast. Okay. Um, and that's over on iTunes.
0: Very good. And Levi, Thanks. how about yourself?
1: Um,
2: I am at, uh, com and I write at photofocus.com as well. And, um, you'll find me on Instagram at photo or my outdoor and, and hunting, uh, profile on Instagram is outdoors Levi. So.
0: All right, everyone, thank you so much for being here as well, Uh, being listeners and supporting the show through your feedback and your commentary. And if uh, you haven't done so recently, I invite you to share this episode with a friend. If you found something useful, share it with a friend and let's spread the love of all this photography goodness. And we will see you again in another seven days.